as Brother Todd mentioned, um, today's text is another challenge. Um, as we saw last week, Jesus in the garden and the betrayal and his willingness and out of his great love to drink the Father's the cup of wrath for us. And so this morning we continue our time here in Matthew chapter 26 and even into 27 as we're there on that Thursday night heading into Friday morning where ultimately Jesus will be crucified on the cross. Today we deal with this idea of Jesus' trial, Peter's denial, and Judas is suicidal. Jesus' trial, Peter's denial, and Judas is suicidal. I was about 15 years old or so, the best of my recollection. I was out mowing uh, the lawn in front of my parents' business and I was in a little bit of a hurry that day, and so because of that, I was just trying to push it through as fast as I could as a push mower and rushing. And so there was uh, these parking blocks that kind of separated one part of the sidewalk into the yard. And I just, in, in a rush in that day, I just kind of pushed that bad boy without disengaging the blade or turning it off. And, and man, when I went up over that parking meter, it, it hit that block, and it caught a little piece of that rebar. And in a moment, that, that blade became like a pretzel. And I sat there for about 10 minutes out in the yard, and I thought, man, I'm going to have to go in and tell Dad. And what kept ringing in my ears was this thought that he had said so many times throughout the years, son, just, just remember when you go over the parking block just to turn the mower off. That's the safest for you. I don't want you hurt. And besides that, you're going to mess the mower up. And so I just keep hearing it, replaying that, and realizing in a moment I'm going to have to walk in there. And so I remember walking into the, in the office, and I come to his door, and I knock on it, and he's sitting there. And I can still almost just see my dad. Just He turns to look at me, and he says, you can see that kind of look on his face, right, like something's up. And I said, what? Well, I didn't turn the mower off, and I've, I've messed it up. I've bent the blade up. It's, it's bad. And um, he gives me that look like, son, I warned you. And, I, and I'll never forget just the words that came out of his mouth. Well, let's go get another one. And it was just like this moment in which our relationship was defined upon grace. Like It was a defining moment. It just one of those things where you experience your, your parents' love, but like one of those moments when you've made a stupid mistake that you know they already warned you not to. And I, I'll never forget getting to go and, and going to the Eagles and everybody laughing about what I had done and talking. And I, I can remember even just thinking, well, maybe he's just having a good day today and he, it, this is probably not going to go well later. But man, throughout the years, my brothers would, would retell the story and talk about how the fact that if that had been them and not daddy's baby, that that would not have gone like that. And my dad would often just sit and laugh and smile. But it was just a moment in which it just reminds me, maybe in a small glimpse of what we're going to see in this story is, the truth is we, we've all disobeyed, yeah, our, our earthly parents and sinned and messed up. But guys, the truth is we've all sinned and disobeyed our Heavenly Father. And I think the question from the text is, 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 is it kind of causes us to wrestle with the fact that we actually are a lot more like Peter and even like Judas than we want to admit. And I think the question that you have to ask yourself today as we come to this idea of Jesus' trial, Peter's denial, and Judas being suicidal, the question isn't, can you get out of it? But instead, where will you turn? Where will you turn for your sin and your disobedience? How will you deal with the denials and the betrayals in your own life? So today's text gives us these three big themes to wrestle with. And the first one is Jesus' trial. Jesus' trial happens again. Remember, as last week we, we left, Jesus has been in the garden praying, and Judas has shown up with some of the chief, uh, the, the leaders and of the temple, and they have arrested Jesus, and all the disciples have fled. And now the text begins to unfold late into the night Thursday, 
Listen to what happens. Pick up with me, if you would, begin in verse 57 of Matthew 26. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. I've read this text a lot. I, I just, I don't, I don't ever remember hearing that simple statement, to see the end. It just stood out to me this week. Man, it's, it's a sobering statement. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. This is a tough passage, one that unfolds. Now, if you look back, right, Jesus is there. And it says in, in verse 59 that we have the chief priests, we have the whole council, right, that's come together. And so you have to understand you have chief priests, you have, you have scribes, you have elders that are of the people. There's about typically 70 of them, right? We're not sure if all 70 were present this Thursday night. But again, a large group of them has gathered. You might think of it as kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. Right, and they're there, and but this trial, historians, one of the things that stood out to me this week that I had no idea is how much injustice is happening in the midst of this trial. And I want to just maybe share three things that, that I learned this week, and there's many others actually that unfolded in Jesus' trial, but Matthew's showing us some things. One is Jewish trials are supposed to happen during the day and not at night. So why would they be happening at night? Why? Because it gives an opportunity for them to be corrupt, right? There's less people that are present. They can hide and do some things they don't want everybody to see and know about. That's why trials would have to happen during the day, because the people would be present to hear and see things. But this one is happening at night. Secondly, did, did you notice the Sanhedrin, right? These, these Jewish leaders, it's their job to be the judges. But notice what they're doing. It says, now the chief priest, verse 59, and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. They might put him to death. This, this is, can you imagine the trial? The judge is sitting at, sitting at the bench hearing different testimony, and he gets up and excuses himself from the bench and goes and sits over with the prosecution and starts calling witnesses against you. Can you imagine sitting there and thinking, that's not fair, right? The judge is supposed to be hearing arguments made from both sides. And then weighing the evidence and giving a verdict. But instead, these judges are wicked and evil. Matthew's saying, guys, listen, this trial is not fair. And then third, uh, there's a thing I didn't know. Witnesses who were found lying are to receive the punishment that the accused was set to receive. Can you imagine that? If you go into the courtroom and you lie about something, right, they give a false testimony, then what happened is if that was found out that you received the punishment that the person who was being accused was set to receive. Can you imagine the accountability? But in this courtroom, there's all these false witnesses and there's no accountability. Guys, all of this gives a glimpse. Matthew's just showing us things of how much injustice Jesus is experiencing. And so the, the chief priest, right, is upset and, and he, he challenges Jesus, right? He's, because, listen, this finally a statement's been made that they've heard he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And he says, well, how do you answer this? And notice what Jesus, what the text says in verse 63. But Jesus does what? He remains silent. Why? Because it's part of fulfillment of Isaiah 53, right? It talks about how he was led like a sheep to the slaughters. And it says in verse 7 of Isaiah 53, as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
But Jesus' silence infuriates the high priest and the leaders. And listen to what happens further in verse 63. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, it's interesting, biblical scholar D.A. Carson says that when this, this statement here, I adjure you or I charge you by the living God, Jesus refuses to answer. He's breaking a legally imposed oath. And so in this moment, if Jesus denies the fact that he's actually the true son of God, then guess what? The crisis is over, but so is his influence. And so listen to Jesus' answer. This is like one of those high points in all of Matthew's gospel. Verse 64 is crucial. Kind of Matthew's been building, pointing to this. Jesus has been pointing. And now at the moment of trial, the moment of kind of like death is at Jesus' doorstep. What will he say about himself? Listen to the answer he gives. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This statement, you have said so, is the same thing that Jesus just said previously to Judas when he says, is it I, Rabbi? And he says, you have said so. It's a statement in which there indicates there's some type of indictment happening. There's something deep within that person who's giving this response. There's there's more happening internally than you know and understand. You have said so. But Jesus, again, to further clarify so that there's not a misunderstanding of what it means to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, because that's so much the misunderstanding, not only for the religious leaders, but even the disciples. Maybe that's even what's one of the things driving Judas. He doesn't understand. If Jesus is actually the Messiah, why doesn't he throw off Roman oppression, bring in the kingdom? Well, he's bringing the kingdom. But it happens through his death and resurrection. And so Jesus says, you have said so, but I tell you, From now on, he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Several things are happening here. Let's just walk through just a few of them for a moment. Notice what he says to them first. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man, which is a favorite designation of who Jesus is and his identity. But notice what he says, that he's seated. Why is that interesting? Well, because guess what's happening right now in this moment? These religious leaders are sitting, right? They're the ones in power and they're judging him. But Jesus says, I want you to know there's coming another day. And on that day, there's going to be a great reversal. Those who are now in power, giving verdicts and rules, he says, I want you to know that I, on that day, will be seated. And you'll be standing before me. And I will be deciding your eternity. He says further to them, look what he says. You you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Now, what's interesting about this statement, right hand of power, is because, as you're going to see in a moment there in verse 65, the high priest is going to tear his robes because of what he hears Jesus saying and say, this is blasphemy. Why? Why? Because they believe that Jesus, who is, they think he's just a man, he's claiming to be God. That's a blasphemous thing. I mean, if any of us stood up here today and said that I'm Jesus the Messiah, or I'm the Savior, I'm the promised one, we would say, that's blasphemy. That's not who you are. That's how they perceive this. But Jesus says, I want you to know there's going to come a day when you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. What's he saying? He's saying, you guys, don't think I'm worthy of God's presence, but I want you to know this, that not only will I be in the presence of God for all eternity, I'll be at his right hand at the position of greatest honor and power. Jesus says there's coming the greatest reversal that you have ever seen and known. Notice what he says further to them. And he's coming on the clouds of heaven. Guys, that statement declares that though his death is coming, there's going to become a resurrection. A moment in which Jesus is going to fulfill the very words he's quoting from here and citing Daniel chapter 7, 13 to 14. 
that there comes this great messianic figure that God the Father is there ruling and reigning. And Daniel says this, this one comes forward. And he takes the scroll from his hand and, and this one begins to rule and reign over all the nations and all the nations are worshiping him. Jesus says, I am that person and I'm going to return on the clouds of heaven. My death will not be the end. But despite these great statements from Jesus, again, Matthew 26, 64 is an epic statement. The high priest in response, verse 65, he tears his robes and he says, well, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Guys, all of our hope and our joy and our peace rises on the fall, on, rises and falls on the fact of, is Jesus actually who he says he is here? Is he truly the Son of Man who will be seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven? Why? Because the truth is we're going to be, again, we're a lot more like Peter and Judas than we ever want to admit or acknowledge, and we are in desperate need of rescue. And this passage says to us that the only way to redeem and rescue us is that the Son of Man must come and die. He's going to live a perfect life, the life that we could never live. And therefore, he goes to the cross, not for his own sin and shame, but for ours. He's going to be crucified there, taking the judgment of God for sinners, buried on the third day by the power of God. He's going to be raised again, declaring that he has overcome our sin, our shame. He's overcome our greatest enemy, as we've been studying in Sunday school this morning, from creation to chaos. He is overcoming the curse of sin and death. He is restored and redeemed, and raised to life, never to die again. It's the hope of for all those who repent and believe on Him that God credits His perfect life to you, and your sin and shame is put on Him. It's the hope of the gospel that we can now be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we can truly live out God's design. So Jesus is here on trial. But what happens in this moment, Matthew now gives a glimpse to say, this is not all that's happening. Yes, Jesus is on trial, but what we now hear is this epic moment of Peter's denial, or we ought to say denials. It's a hard moment. Turn me, if you would, to see what's happening again as Jesus is there confessing his identity. Peter, if you would, begin verse 69 of Matthew 26. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it for them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl said to him, came to, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath saying, I do not know the man. Notice the progression, right, that happens here. First in verse 70, look what he says. I do not know, look what he says, what you mean. Peter's like, I don't, what, are you talk, what are you talking about? What's she talking about? I mean, this servant girl, she didn't know, like, what, what's she talking about? But watch the progression that happens again. Now, she, this time she says the bystander. So others are now being included. She's saying, this man was also with Jesus of Nazareth, right? So he goes out. There's another servant girl. Sees him. She begins to talk to others. This guy, he's, he's, a, he's a part of Jesus. He's, he's with this guy that they're condemning as guilty right now. This guy who's claiming to be God, he's, he's a follower of his. Notice the progression that happens. Instead of saying, I don't know what you mean, listen to his statement. I do not what? I don't know the man. This time, right, he, he's, Matthew records that he also denies it with an oath, right? He, he's, he's in a sense saying, God, if I'm lying, right, curse me. 
show me. That's, that's what he's saying right there. He's kind of proving the fact, right? You, you maybe remember as a kid, you, you maybe tried to like really prove that you were really being honest about something. You're like, I swear on my mother's grave. Maybe it's something you said because you want people to realize you were really being serious. It's maybe beside the point, but the reality is we don't swear, right? Because why? Because Jesus said your yes should mean yes and your no should mean no. He says anything further than that is from the evil one. But the point is, Peter is trying to give an oath to prove to everyone, this is how serious I am. And so he's, he's making this type of oath in the presence of God. Peter and we all might say, praise God for a merciful Savior that doesn't strike him dead in that moment. Why? Because we know he's lying. But I think the irony of the moment cannot be lost upon us. While Peter is calling Jesus just a man to save his own skin, Jesus is confessing that he is the Son of Man at the cost of his own skin. I mean, it's an ironic moment, isn't it? Peter is denying, right? That Jesus, he's just, he's just acknowledging that Jesus is just a man. Why? Because he wants to save his own skin. But in that very moment, as Peter is out here in the courtyard and this unfolding, Jesus is in there in verse 64 confessing he is the Son of Man. And it will cost him his life. But Peter isn't finished denying After the first two, listen to what happens in verse 73. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them for your what? What betrays him? His accent. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. This is not like he's starting to cuss, right? He's just invoking again these uh, these oaths, saying again, God, if I'm lying, strike me dead, so to speak. Look what he says again. He affirms that I do not know the man. And immediately what happens, church? The rooster crowed. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me what? Three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. It's interesting, right? That statement there. He says to them uh, here in verse 73, certainly you two are one of them for your accent betrays you. It was my first international mission trip. I'd gone to Costa Rica, and we were in the rainforest somewhere between Costa Rica and Panama, and it, it, was, it was pretty rugged, pretty intense. And I, I remember I was trying to, like, communicate with a little bit of Spanish I had learned in high school. And, man, when I would speak it, it was just I would see the people, the native people, and they would begin to laugh. And my guess is probably because it sounded something like this. Hola, amigos. Right? It just sounded wild. My accent gave it away that I was not from there. Right? They're like, come on, bro. Right? Look, guess what? The same way Peter has an accent that in some way mimics, right? It sounds like Jesus. Like it sounds like, hey, you're a Galilean too. You're, you're from where this guy's from. Right? I mean, you hear people, right? You probably recognize if somebody ain't from Green County, you pretty know it pretty quick. Like, you ain't from around here. I can hear your accent. It gives you away. Right? But immediately in this moment, as, as Peter is denying his Lord and Savior, the rooster crows. We're going to come in a moment to hear maybe a little bit or digest a little bit of what's it mean, the fact that Peter begins to weep and to cry. But I think his, his example gives us both a warning and an encouragement. There's a warning. Beware of your pride. Let me say it again. Beware of your pride. Why? Consider who this is. This is Peter. Jesus called him the rock. When you read through the gospel accounts and they list the 12 disciples, guess whose name always is the first of the list? Peter. I mean, Peter, right, is the one who has just said, even if the rest of these guys don't stay true to you, Jesus, I will never deny you. I'll never be part of a scandal like that. I'm even willing to die with you. And here he is just a few hours later denying his Savior three times. Church, if it can happen to Peter, it can happen to us. Might we hear the words of Proverbs 16, 18? Pride goes before the what? 
the fall. We hear the word of God say to us, be careful that you think you stand lest you fall. I don't know if Peter had these words or this moment in his heart and mind as he wrote to the first Peter chapter five, verse eight. But I think nonetheless, maybe it was a warning from his own life that he would want to pass on to those people. And maybe to us, just maybe a reminder, be careful. Listen to what he says in verse eight of first Peter five. He says, be sober minded, be watchful for your enemy, the devil. He prowls around among you even this morning. It's like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. Peter says, guys, be watchful. Be aware. I didn't think that. He didn't th- there was no, Peter had no doubt in his mind that he would go through with that. Let it be a warning to any of us that think that that won't happen to us or we would never do what so-and-so has done. There's a real warning, but I think there's also an encouragement. Guys, these three dials, they're no small thing. But the hope is that we have in this moment is that Peter is so restored from these epic denials that he is the one that God chooses on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 to preach the sermon. This is a restoring God. I think it declares to us that no moment or no action is beyond the grace of God. Let the church say amen. No moment or no action is beyond the grace of God. I think each of us need to tell ourselves, if God can still use Peter after this, then he can still use me. Mm, What a hope. Assuredly, we've all denied God in many different ways, haven't we? Maybe it was a moment of temptation for you with sexual morality and you just went on and did what you wanted. Maybe it was a moment of gossip and you were there in that moment and maybe the Holy Spirit was restraining you saying, don't say that, don't talk about that person, don't share what you know, but your flesh just couldn't wait to share those gushy details and you just went ahead and let it out. Whatever you've done, whether big or small, however you see it, Peter's being restored after this declares to us that God can forgive it. Christ died to set you and I free. That is the hope of Romans 8 and 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You hear that? There is no condemnation for those who have come under the blood of Christ. So Peter's moment is a moment of warning, but it's also a moment of encouragement. So Jesus' trial, Peter's denial. And third and last, we come to this reality. Jesus, Judas is suicidal. Matthew 27 begins in verse 1 by saying, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Why? Because the Jews did not have the power to kill, crucify someone. So that's what's happening here. And then this moment happens, verses 3 through 10, which is kind of an interesting moment. Like, why does Matthew put Jesus' story in here? I think maybe there's several things to consider, but maybe I'll just present two of them today. One is, I think it's God showing that despite the efforts of sinful man, God still accomplishes his purpose. And then secondly, I think it's a warning to all of us not to turn our back on God. So let's look first at this, how God accomplishes his purposes despite sinful man, humanity, doing our own will and desire. Look what it says, beginning in verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the piece of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the piece of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel 
this is important right here, and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood or a keldama, maybe depending on your translation, to this day. Then was filled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Did you hear that statement? Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So despite all of this evil, all these wicked things happening, right? Matthew says to us, guys, I want you to see that God's still in control, right? You, you have to wonder, right, when you see this, how could the Son of God be betrayed in the hands of sinful men, right? How, how in the world could Peter, is, is his beloved disciple Peter, be denying him? How could Judas, one of the twelve, be working with the evil conspirators to betray Jesus and hand him over? You're hearing all this and wondering, man, has God lost control? And Matthew says... Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of, of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Matthew says that this is fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 19, Zechariah chapter 11. I'll be honest, this is kind of a challenging statement exactly of how he's pulling some of this together. But the warning is from Jeremiah 19, Zechariah chapter 11, is the people... Instead of following the good shepherds that God had placed in their path, they instead choose the evil ones. And it leads them not to God, but away from Him. And part of that judgment is, is this potter's field and that people are, ble- are buried in a, in a place that's unclean, right? It's been said that this was unclean money that buys an unclean place for unclean people. And so there's this fulfillment that Matthew's telling us, guys, that despite all of the evil hearts that are unfolding throughout this, all the schemes of wicked men, I want you to know that God is still accomplishing His purpose. And might it say to us that despite the fact that back in Jeremiah's day and Zechariah's day, the people's hearts were evil and were not looking to God, so it is even in Jesus' day. Their hearts just then still needed to be redeemed. It says to us today that whether you lived in Jeremiah's day or Zechariah's day or you lived in the day of Jesus, the truth is every single one of us need our hearts redeemed. We need to be restored. So I think that's one thing that Matthew is bringing out through the story of Judas. But I think there's also some truth that he's warning us through Judas' suicide. So let's walk through it just for a moment. It's a challenging text. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, verse 3, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver the chief priest and the elders. Notice that statement there, he changed his mind, right? Often the word we get for repentance, so we've got to wrestle with this for a moment. Notice further what Judas does is he says there, I have what? Sin. He acknowledges it, right? He confesses his sin. And then further we see him, right, it says, that he, he brought back, see that statement there? He brought back the 30 pieces of silver, the price they had paid to give him to betray Jesus. But his sorrow leads him to death, not restoration. I think we need to ask, why is that? Why does Judas not end up being restored? What's happening here? And I think uh, there's probably a lot of answers to that, but I, I want to give maybe just two today for you to wrestle and chew on. One is maybe more a lot of application for us. And I think one thing is, is that Judas receives bad counsel. I mean, this is terrible pastoral counsel. Listen to the statement. He goes in there. He says, he gives back the 30 pieces of silver. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said to the, say back to Judas, what do they say back to him? What is that to us? See to it yourself. Guys, they're saying to him, that's your problem, not ours. 
It is our call as believers and spiritual leaders, pastors and leaders of the church, but as spiritual leaders, it is our call to point people to Christ, to point them to the hope that there's a God who can forgive them. It is our call of Galatians 6 to bear one of those burdens. Therefore, I want to compel you. If you're dealing with someone who is struggling with suicide, get them help. Don't turn away from them. Let them know that you are there and above all else, point them to Christ. I'll confess that I I was, again, Brother Todd talked about it, National Suicide Prevention Week, and I wasn't aware that that farmers had as many struggles. I'm aware that farmers struggle, but like this article on Kentucky Today this past week just really stood out to me. I I just want to give a quote to you from it because I think it fits so much of the culture in which you find yourself here in Greene County. Look what it says about how much farmers struggle with suicide in this. The unpredictability of the weather, the unpredictability of the crop yields, the unpredictability of the markets, financial losses that can accrue, the whole idea of loss, it's very prominent, you know, in causing depression and just hopelessness. I share that because many of you are farmers or you know farmers. I want to compel us to tell them more than see to it yourself. Let's find ways, God, to point them to Christ and to give them hope in Jesus. And I say that, and the reality is, I know that many of you in this room have done that very thing. You've given good counsel, you walked beside, whether it was a farmer or whether others, and the reality is they still made a sinful choice. To those who have walked that road, I want to say that I'm sorry you've had to deal with that. I'm sorry that you faced that moment of someone that you love and care about. Maybe they shared things or maybe they weren't saying anything at all and you had no idea. I want to let you know that there's a God who sees and who comforts in the midst of that affliction and heartache. I want to compel us as believers, as a church, that we need to do more than say, see to it yourself. They need our prayers. They need us to listen. They need to hear the hurt. And some of you who have experienced suicide, you need to intentionally go to those who are walking that path. Why? Because, like we said last week, you know the hurt. You've experienced what many of us, we just don't know. You can sing that sorrowful song in the night. I want to compel us as believers to do what these chief priests don't do. To look, to bear one another's burdens and point people to Christ. But I don't think that's the only reason why Judah's sorrow doesn't lead him to the right place and i think that truth again he changed his mind we hear that right and we wonder he says i've sinned he's acknowledging it but i think paul gives us maybe some clarity in second corinthians 7 and 10 that i think is insightful for what's maybe happening internally let's deal with it just for a moment for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death Guys, I think from Jesus' story, when we hear him, what we have to see is that although he has sorrow and grief, it appears that it's worldly. And the truth is, for that worldly grief, notice what it says, it produces death. Let me read the text again. And I'm just going to try to, again, I think this is one of those moments like pastorally, like you just, you want to help your people, right? He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Guys, as we all are going to be dealing with grief, sorrow, heartache, conviction, right? That we're sinful, we're broken, there's sinful and broken things happening around us. I want to ask you, where do you see your grief and your sorrow leading you? 
And what I think Paul says to us here, and it's so true, is that if it's worldly grief and sorrow, it's, it's just going to lead you further toward that depression and hopelessness, that sense that, like, there's no rescue from it. There's no hope. Like, it's, just, it's worldly grief. But notice what he says about this, this godly grief. This godly grief, notice what he says, it produces what? A repentance. And notice where that repentance leads us to. It leads to salvation. Guys, I want to ask you, in the midst of your sorrow and heartache, do you find it leading you more to the cross and to Christ or further away from it? I want to compel you as you deal with such heartache and sorrow, the enemy who wages war spiritually is going to try to drive you further and further away from looking to God. But godly grief, godly sorrow, godly conviction of sin, it produces a repentance. Why? Because you know there's one who can die, who died for that, who can save and redeem you. You know there's a God who knows your sorrow so much. His love is so intense towards you that he gives his life for you. Let his love be what drives us in the midst of our grief and sorrow to produce a repentance that leads to salvation. Because he says there is a worldly grief, but it produces death. I think if I was just being honest, as I look at the two stories of Peter and Judas, the difference is, is that one goes to Jesus and the other doesn't. And so I just really want to ask, just being honest with you, in the midst of your grief and sorrow, where are you going? Satan, guys, I'm telling you, he's going to beat you down. Dude. He's going to tell you you can never recover from that mistake, that betrayal, that whatever. He's going to tell you this, the losses and the things you're experiencing. It'd be easier for your family or others if you just weren't even here. Who would even miss you? Guys, that's, it's, it's just the enemy working. He's driving you further and further away. See, listen again, if you want your true identity, don't look at your, 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 your 401k. Don't look at your most recent tax return. Don't look at what you see in the mirror. Don't look at what other people are saying about you in social media. If you want to know your true value, look to the cross. It's the Son of God dying for you. Not on your best day, on the worst of days. While we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. Guys, let His love come to you in the midst of sorrow and heartache. Let that produce a grief that is godly, that produces repentance and leads to salvation. Maybe you're here today and you're discouraged. You've struggled. Maybe Peter's denial and beat Judas's betrayal. Man, it just echoes of shame and mistakes you've made. I just want to ask the question we asked at the beginning. In the midst of your sorrow and shame, Where will you turn? To whom do you look? And I want to let you know today that if you're in Christ, these words that were written in 1863 are such an encouragement and hope. And I want to close with it. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. To look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him 
and pardon me. It's the hope of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray now, thanking you for your word. Thanking you that the last two weeks have been somber texts, God. They've been hard. Today, we deal with a real issue that we all face, denying you. We've all, God, the truth is, we're more like Peter and Judas than we are like you. But thank you that you have not turned your back on us. God, praise your name today. I just pray that the grace and the mercy that is available to us in Christ will overwhelm every single soul. God, I do pray for those who are in much sorrow here. I pray for especially, first and foremost, God, I want to pray right now for those whose sorrow and grief is hidden. We do not know it, but they are wrestling deep within. God, I pray today by this text and the power of your Holy Spirit, you will compel them to reach out with some, someone and share the struggles they're having. Father, I pray today also for those in this room that this is un... It's like ripping a scar off. And it's a reminder of a moment or moments in their life that they would do anything to change. God, I just pray that you, you are the great comforter. And so I just pray that you would comfort our people. Lord, we love them. I know that you love them. So Lord, would you just comfort our people? Father, would you just strengthen every heart in here today to look to you and to see that there's one who can overcome our biggest mistakes, our biggest sin and betrayal, Thank you, Jesus. Pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.